0: Welcome once again to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont campus. If we don't know each other, my name is Brian. I'm the pastor of the church in Belmont, Massachusetts, and it's great to talk to you again. Last Sunday, we started a new sermon series. You're about to hear the first message in that series now. We're calling it Groupthink, Challenging Our Assumptions. I don't know if this has happened to you. It certainly happened to me. I have assumed that I knew things. Assumed that I was thinking correctly on things, only later to find out that I was wrong. And so we're asking this question in this series. Are there things that we embrace as a culture that we assume are true that we need to take some time and evaluate? We think there's a few things that many of us often embrace as true that, when held up to God's word, might need a second look. So we're going to take a look at those things over the next few weeks, and I hope you'll enjoy it, and I hope you'll listen closely, because I believe that God has something He would like to say to you. I'm excited because this morning we start a new sermon series. And this new sermon series that we are beginning, we're calling Groupthink, and we're we're calling it Challenging Our Assumptions. Over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about a reality that's happening in the culture in which we live, and that is our culture, and you can tell me whether or not this is true, but I think that we're all going to agree on this, that by and large, our culture is moving away from its roots. And when I say our culture, I mean specifically Western culture is moving away from its roots, now, we could decide and we could have a conversation about whether or not this is, this is good or whether or not it's bad. All I'm saying right now is whether or not this statement is true, and that's, that's that our culture was founded on principles that come out of Judeo-Christian values, that that helps shape our culture at one point in time. And now, as a culture, we're moving away from those things, I think we'd all agree that that's true. Now, some of us in the room may say, yes, we are, and that's a good thing. Some of us may say, yes, we are, and that's a bad thing. But is the, the principle I think we can all agree on, that we are moving away from some of those deep-rooted values where we began. Our culture is moving in a different direction. In fact, we have what Oz Guinness is, calls in his book, Impossible People, a cut flower culture. That's what he calls us that the West is becoming a cut flower culture. Now, I have some flowers here on the table this morning, and cut flowers are a good thing, aren't they? Cut flowers are something that are beautiful, something that uh, brings a lot of value and changes a room. They smell nice. They look nice. We use them in a lot of different situations. If we're trying to show sympathy and compassion to somebody who's going through a difficult situation, we take them, cut flowers, and that's an expression of our compassion and sympathy. If someone does something great, if we want to congratulate someone, uh, our our daughter at her dance recital a few months ago, that we take cut flowers and we give them to somebody to say, congratulations, you've done a great job. I can tell you this morning that I'm not sure how it works, but cut flowers have saved my marriage on more than one occasion, right? <laughs> Which is beautiful. I'm not sure how that works, but it just works. And so cut flowers are a good thing. That's a bit of an exaggeration, by the way, but cut flowers are a, a good thing. And they bring value. But what's the big problem with cut flowers? The big problem is they're separated from their roots, right? And so they only have temporary value. They don't have staying power. They don't have lasting value. They're beautiful for a time. But after that time, they lose their beauty. They lose their worth. And they're, uh, most of the time, discarded. And so Oz Guinness suggests to us that what we have is a cut flower civilization. We are moving away from our roots as a civilization, and we are moving into something new. And he suggests that while it looks great now, over time, it's going to begin to decay. The question we're going to ask over the next few weeks is, is that true? Is he right in that? And doing that, we're going to look at some of the things that we assume as a culture, some of the things that we buy into. And this isn't a whether or not you're a Christian thing. I think whether you're a Christian or not, all of us begin to assume some of the things that the culture around us assumes. And we're going to look at those things that we're assuming and ask ourselves if they're good or not. And spoiler alert, I'm going to suggest that we need to get back to reattaching those assumptions back to The roots of faith. Most of us have a bias towards what the current culture thinks. We have a feeling that history is moving forward, that if we've come up with a new idea or a new way to think about things, that it's better. J.I. Packer, who's a thinker and theologian and professor, this is the way that he says it. He says, this is how what we embrace. Uh, The newer is truer. Only what is recent is decent. Every shift of ground is a step forward, and every latest word must be hailed as the last word on the subject. And I think, by and large, we do believe that. That what is new is better. Uh, It's why we line up for a mile to get the newest iPhone, even though the iPhone in our pocket works just fine. It's why we're so interested in new research and new developments. We think that we're moving in the right direction, that newer is better. And so when our culture begins to assume something, we'll take it on because that's our inherent bias. But have you ever assumed something is true and found out later, very embarrassingly, that it's not really true? You ever thought you know someone's name and you say it with great confidence over and over and over again? And only later does that person come back to you and you say, you know, you keep calling me Rick, but my name is Bill. And and you're not sure how it started, but you thought for sure it was Rick. Have you ever walked into church on a Sunday morning, shaken someone's hand and said, man, it's great to have you here. Thank you for visiting our church. And the person looks back at you and says, I've been here for three months. Have you ever had that happen on a Sunday morning? Sometimes we assume things are true. Has someone done that to you? I apologize if that's happened to you, but... Sometimes we assume things and we think that they're true, uh, but we find out later that they're not. And are we doing that in our culture? That's the question we're going to ask. Are we assuming things that are true? Are we buying into things thinking that they're true, but they're actually not? My daughter used to love a certain television program, and it hasn't been on in our house in a little while, but she really liked it for one time, and it's called Bob the Builder. Is anyone familiar with Bob the Builder? If you're not familiar with Bob the Builder, Bob the Builder is a character, it's a it's like stop animation character uh, who builds things and fixes things and has all this equipment that he works with and all these tools that he works with. And in the theme song for Bob the Builder, they ask a big question. The song goes, Bob the Builder, and then they say, can we fix it? Anyone familiar with this song? All right, Bob the Builder, can we fix it? And then it says, Bob the Builder. Does anyone know? Yes, Yes, we can. All right. A lot of PBS fans here in the audience. (laughs) Bob the Builder. Can we fix it? Bob the Builder. Yes, we can. I want to suggest to you this morning that in our culture, as we get into this first week of talking about some of our assumptions, that we live in a Bob the Builder world, That the world that we live in, the culture that we live in, is a Bob the Builder culture, a Bob the Builder world. In fact, I don't think there's really a problem that we face that we don't think we can fix. Anything that we see in front of us that's a problem, that's an issue, we look at it as people and we think to ourselves, you know, no matter how big it is, no matter how overwhelming it is, you know, could we fix this? Yes, we can. And here's what I think we believe. Here's what all of us assume. We assume that given enough time, money, and effort, scientific and technological innovation will solve any problem we face. And given enough time, money, and effort, our advances, innovation, entrepreneurship, scientific advancements, technological advances will solve any problem that we Face. I think most of us think that is true. In fact, I would say probably all of us buy into this at some level. If we have a problem, if there's an issue, if we just get the right people working on it for the right amount of time and we put enough resources into it, there isn't a problem that we face that we cannot fix as a culture and as a society. And so this morning, I want us to think about this and just ask ourselves whether or not it is true whether or not it's true that this is the culture we live in. Tim Cook, when he received an award, he received a humanitarian award, and some of you know Tim Cook is the CEO of Apple, took over after Steve Jobs. He thinks this way. In fact, when he received uh, the Ripple of Hope Award, it's an award given out by the Robert uh, F. Kennedy uh, Center, he received that award. He said in his speech, we reject pessimism and cynicism. We see no contradiction between a hard-headed realism and an unshakable idealism that says anything is possible if we just get to work. And I think what Tim Cook says there in his acceptance speech sums up very well how many of us in our culture think that, yeah, there's difficult things in our world. There's big problems in our world. There's things that we, that we have to tackle that are, that are huge issues, But we have this idealism that if we just get the right people working on it for the right amount of time and get the right resources engaged, there isn't a problem that we face that we can't solve on our own. And this morning, I want us to think about whether or not that's true. Whether or not advancing in our knowledge of things is enough. And to answer that question, Question To talk about the assumption that we make, we're going to very ironically go to one of the most ancient passages in the Bible. Some of you may be familiar with the story of Job. It's one of my favorite stories in Scripture, and maybe you enjoy it as well. Job uh, happened, most scholars believe, very early on. In biblical history. And even though you'll find it towards the middle of your Bible, it's there because it's a certain type of literature, not because of the time frame in which it happened. The Bible is categorized into genres of literature more than chronological order. And so Job finds its way right next to Psalms and Proverbs because it's considered something called wisdom literature, of which Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes all find their home. And so Job is there too. But chronologically, it happened much earlier, very early on in biblical history. And so we're going to travel to one of the most ancient texts in Scripture to answer a question that we ask today. Job, if you aren't familiar with the story, Job was uh, the most religious man of his time. Great relationship with God, we read. He was also the wealthiest man of his time. In the known world where he lived, uh, no one had more resources, a better family, uh, or a stronger relationship with God than Job. And Job, if you read the story, goes through a period of trial and testing and loss that truly is epic. He loses his entire family except for his wife, all of his children, and his grandchildren. And then he loses all of his possessions as well. And so he literally goes from being the uh, the top of the Forbes list of the time uh, to having nothing. And through that journey, he comes to know God better than ever before And God restores everything back to him and even more at the end of the story. But in the middle of the story, Job is speaking out of this anguish and out of this pain. And in one of the chapters in Job chapter 28, Job chapter 28, he gets towards this assumption that we're talking about today. Talking about the innovation of men, talking about the innovation of the human race, talking about the innovation of of men and women and what they're able to get done and what they're able to discover and how it relates to the reality of who God is. And so we're gonna use Job's words in Job 28 to answer this assumption for ourselves today. Job 28, verse one, this is what Job says. We're gonna walk through this together. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth, And copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread. But underneath, it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light." So what's Job talking about here? Job is talking about the innovations of his day. Job is saying, listen, as people, we are able to do amazing things. We are able to mine the depths of the earth. And Job's talking about something that in his day, thousands of years ago, would have been pretty remarkable. And you think about it, it's still fairly remarkable today. The fact that we can tunnel through the earth, topple mountains by their roots, Job says, And go down deep and find things of great value, gold and sapphire, things of great value hidden underneath the earth. Job says animals can't do this, but we can. We can challenge the depths of the earth and push the limits beyond what we ever thought was possible. And it's interesting that Job at the very beginning of this poem, I want to point this out, is not deriding this. He's not saying it's a bad thing. In fact, I think that Job Job is in awe of this. And I want to make clear, I am in awe of the scientific and technological advances that we make as humans. That's not the point of this message. The point is not to deride more knowledge. The point is not to say we shouldn't be making advancements. That's not the point at all. That's a good thing. And so it's a good thing for us. It's a good thing in the book of Job. What is happening here? You think about all that's happened in our world We have made many advances that have made life a much better place. It's impressive what has taken place. You may have noticed that over the last couple of weeks, our beloved baseball team, many of you love the Boston Red Sox, have gotten in big trouble. They stole signs, which is as ancient as it comes. Uh, As long as baseball's been around, people have been stealing signs. But they did it with an Apple Watch, which I think they should be rewarded for, not punished for it is pretty amazing that we live in a day and time where someone could take a, a device that's on their wrist. I mean, think about that. That is like Star Trek stuff. That is stuff we never thought would happen. That is, those are the things that they talked about when I was in elementary school, and they said, in the year 2000, you're not going to believe what you can do. And we thought, that stuff, I don't even know that stuff will ever happen, and it does. You can have a phone conversation from your watch. It's crazy what happens. You take someone from five years ago who hasn't been around for five years And you bring them back and you say the Red Sox got busted for stealing signs and you're like, what did they use, TV camera? And you're like, no, a watch. And their mind would explode. They wouldn't even be able to understand it because in such a short time, things have changed so dramatically. And it's a good thing. I think about my grandmother who is still alive and was born on February 14th, 1923. And some of you have family members that have been around a while. She's 94 years old. The things that she's seen in her life, the things that have taken place, I'm sure she never thought she'd see a day that she's halfway across the country she could video chat on an iPad with her great-grandkids. It's amazing the world that we live in, how connected we are, how things have come together. Many of you know and have been praying for uh, Steve Viola who is a big part of our church, uh, has been for a number of years, was huge in helping us renovate this building like we talked about earlier. And right now, many of you are praying for Steve because Steve is, is battling um, and he, he's in a tough spot with his health. Uh, in fact, I heard this morning that he took a step backwards. So please keep praying for Steve. But as I talked to Sharon, his wife, earlier this week, she reminded me of something that's pretty incredible. And that is in the 1980s, Steve was in a place where he had a cancer that was so advanced that the doctors told him that he was not going to live. And then they told him there is, if you'd like, a very experimental bone marrow transplant treatment that's happening in Seattle. If you want to try it, you can. This was 1987, I believe. And they said three people have tried this experiment and all three have passed away. But you fit the qualifications for the trial. If you'd like to try it, you can go. And so Steve and Sharon hopped a plane along with Steve's sister, Chris, who was the donor, and they went to Seattle. And they spent some time in Seattle, and they did this bone marrow transplant that was a giant Hail Mary at the time. And today, Steve remains the longest known survivor, the longest survivor of this treatment. But here's the thing. Today, this treatment would happen no problem. Every hospital across the country would do this treatment. And what was such a huge experiment, such a miracle in 1987, today, uh, even though it's a serious thing, it's still somewhat routine for the doctors who do it. These innovations are, are helpful things. And that's not what Job, Job's not deriding these things. He's in awe of them. Look what we can do. Look what we can do. But then Job asks a huge question, an important question, and it's the question that many of us don't often ask. Here's what Job asks. But where shall wisdom be found? But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me, and the sea says it is not in me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in the precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold." No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say we have heard rumor of it with our ears. Job asks a very important question after talking about the knowledge and the depth of insight that we can gain as men and women who are pushing the boundaries and pushing the limits. And it's a question that we don't often stop to ask. Job creates a distinction here between knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And it's such an important distinction for us to think about. Job says, we can gain knowledge, but where does the understanding and the context come from as to how we are to use that knowledge, how we're to put it into place, how we're to think it through? Where does that come from? Where does wisdom and understanding come from? We know that wisdom or understand, knowledge and wisdom and understanding are different, right? Uh, w- knowledge tells you that tomato is a fruit, correct? But wisdom and understanding tell you not to put tomatoes in fruit salad. They're different. Knowledge tells you tomato is a fruit. Wisdom tells you not to make a fruit salad with tomatoes in it. There's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. And Job creates that distinction. Knowledge allows us to, do, to manipulate the human genome. Wisdom asks whether or not we should. There's a difference. And so the question is, where does wisdom come from? Where does understanding come from? And Job points out to us a reality that many of us do not want to pay attention to. You see, many of us are like, I would suggest to you Tim Cook is, so optimistic and busy trying to figure out how we can solve the problems of today under our own power that we refuse to acknowledge that science and technology will never answer the deepest questions that we ask. The questions that truly plague our souls and lie underneath it all, science and technology and knowledge will never answer answer. It doesn't matter how far we see into this universe. It doesn't matter how deep we go into this earth. It doesn't matter how many diseases that we cure. It doesn't matter how many devices that we have that connect us together. There are questions that lie underneath the surface of it all that science and technology cannot answer. And the pursuit of knowledge can be a great distraction so that we don't have to pay attention to these questions. Why are we here? Where do we go when we die? What about the problem of evil? What is the purpose of this all? We can be so busy trying to extend human life, trying to increase life expectancy. We can be so busy trying to figure out how to make the universe last another thousand years. And it can just distract us from the fact that we're all going to die and that one day this universe will not exist. Everyone agrees on those two points, but no one wants to think about them. Knowledge can't answer those questions for us. Why is it set up this way? Why is it set up that we don't live forever? Why is it set up that one day our universe is just going to collapse on itself and end? Why is it set up that way? Why are we even here then? If it's all just here for a momentary time, why do we all even exist? Knowledge can tell us everything about it, but it can't tell us why it's put into place. And what we really need at the end of the day is wisdom and understanding to provide context for the knowledge that we have. Knowledge without the wisdom and understanding can be a dangerous and fruitless thing. So where does wisdom come from? Well, Job reminds us at the end of this poem. God understands the way to it, Job writes. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens, When he gave to the wind its weight and he apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a wave for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. And Job reminds us, Job reminds us in this poem that we can do amazing things on our own. That we can understand things that we never thought we'd understand. We can create things that connect us like we never thought we'd create. We can make all the gadgets in the world that do amazing things. But if we really want to understand why it all exists and what we should do with it, we should talk to the person who put it all into place in the beginning. In order to have true wisdom and understanding of this world, we should go to the person that created this world and put it into place. In order to understand how we should use the knowledge that we received, we should go to the God who sits in the heavens and is in control of it all. It reminds me of what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis, who's the great writer and thinker, philosopher, he said, I believe in Christianity and An important point of C.S. Lewis's story is he's someone who later in life moved from being an atheist to being a Christian. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything. Job's saying the same thing happens with knowledge and wisdom, that when we go to God with our knowledge and and ask him for wisdom and understanding, all of a sudden, everything becomes clear in this world. Why it exists, where we're going, why we're here becomes clear when we go to God and ask for his perspective. Here's what Job's saying to us this morning, and I hope you'll catch this uh, before you leave. Job is saying to us, listen, knowledge can be gained apart from God, but wisdom and understanding cannot. Knowledge can be gained apart from God. You can go wherever you want, the internet, your textbook, your research, development, and gain a ton of knowledge, but true wisdom and true understanding cannot be obtained apart from God. A couple thousand years after Job wrote, the Apostle Paul was riding into a culture a Greek culture that prided themselves on their ability to think. This is the time of the great Greek philosophers. This is the time of the Hellenistic period where philosophy and thinking were praised and upheld. And Paul, he writes into that culture and he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. He says this, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What's Paul talking about there? This is what I think Paul's saying. We're so smart and knowledgeable that the idea that there's a God who put this world into place And solved the problem of death and evil and sin by sending his son to live a perfect life on this earth. To die on the cross for our sins. To be raised again that we might have life eternal. And all we need to do is put our trust in him and we receive that eternal life. And we receive forgiveness and our relationship between God is mended and this world begins to fall into place For for us, because our minds are so complex, because of the depths of knowledge that we have mined, it just seems too simple, doesn't it? It seems too simple a solution to the complex problem of why are we here and where do we go. But Paul reminds us it is the solution. That the solution to the questions that plague us is never going to be found within scientific advancement or technological advancement. That we're never going to become smart enough in our own mind to fully understand why we're here and how we solve this problem of death and how we find meaning and purpose and satisfaction in this life. The only way to find it is to put your trust in God who created this world, the God who loved you enough to send his son to die on the cross for your sins, to begin to follow him. And all of a sudden that knowledge becomes into context, and you gain wisdom and understanding to go with it. A couple weeks ago, I met a man who's the CEO of a company in Cambridge. It's a biotech company. And, And as I was talking to him, I found out that he's a Christian. And he said to me, he said, you know, I've worked my entire career in an industry in which everyone around me, all the scientists, everyone that I work with, and he has a PhD himself. He's a smart guy. Everyone around me is knowledgeable enough to understand that the universe could never have put itself together. Everyone I work with is smart enough to understand that it's too complex, it's too improbable that this all just happened. But he said, everyone I work with is too stubborn and prideful to admit it. Is that you this morning? What are the things that are happening in your life that you're trying to solve on your own? You're trying to fix on your own. And no amount of knowledge is really going to get the job done. They're too deep in your soul, too difficult to answer on your own. Would you this morning... Trust God. Would you this morning ask God for the wisdom and for the understanding to be able to put all of those things into context? I don't know what you walk into the room with this morning, but as we've already said, we walk in and in this room with the people that are gathered here, there are a lot of issues that walk into the room, a lot of things that we are facing, a lot of things that we don't know how we're going to solve. And we can become very frustrated just trying to gain more knowledge and fix it all on our own own. And some of us, the only reason we walk into a church on Sunday morning is because we're just trying to gain more knowledge. We're not really into the feeling God's presence and understanding how the Holy Spirit works part. We just want to come in and see if we can mine some more knowledge and understanding uh, from something that happens in the room on a Sunday morning. But all of that is ultimately going to fall short. The only answers to the big questions that plague us wisdom and understanding is found in God, not In our own advancement and understanding. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I think we just need to be reminded of that. Sometimes I need to be reminded of that. And take all those issues that we're trying to solve on our own and take them to God and let Him provide the context for us. I'm gonna invite our worship team to come back as we close this morning. And as we do, I'm gonna ask would you stand with me as we prepare to close? We're gonna sing one final song together. I'm going to invite you as you stand. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? And I want to ask you just to think about this for a minute. Maybe there's a place in your life where you are trusting yourself more than you're trusting God. Maybe there's a place in your life where you're trusting your own ingenuity, your own ability to learn, your own ability to solve things, your own ability to move forward in understanding new things more than you're trusting God. Maybe you walk into the room this morning and your thought is that this whole God thing is pie in the sky. That this whole idea that God provides the wisdom and the context is just wishful thinking. I want you to ask yourself some of those deeper questions this morning. How do you figure out why you're here? What happens when you die? Why are we here if this is all just temporary? And I would encourage you maybe just for the first time in your life to ask God in these moments to say, God, if this is real and if you are true, would you reveal it to me? Would you begin to answer those questions in my life that I cannot answer on my own? And I believe if you'll open up your heart and your mind to God in that way that he's going to start a work in you. He's going to begin to move in your life and in your heart and in your mind in ways that he never has before. I don't know what you walk into the room with this morning that you're trusting your own ability. But my question to you this morning is will you trust God with it? Because knowledge can be gained apart from God. Wisdom and understanding cannot. As we play this final song, we have some leaders in the back of the church. I'll be back there with my wife, Lori. Our elders will be back there. If you have something that you're facing that you're not sure how you're going to solve on your own and you'd like for us to pray to God about it with you, we'd like to do that. So while we're singing, you can come to the back of the room and we'll pray with you. But for the rest of us, let's take this moment and give those things to God. Ask God to bring wisdom and understanding where we can't find it on our own. God, we trust you this morning. Lord, I thank you that you are the God who sits enthroned in the heaven above it all. God, we trust you in the midst of it all. And we look to you for true wisdom and understanding. And thank you for what you call in your word the foolishness of Jesus Christ. That it is by his death and resurrection that all the big questions of this world are answered. And we find life. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont campus. At Mount Hope, we gather each week to learn about God so that we might grow in our love for Him and for others. And then we go to live lives driven by our faith. We'd love to have you join us on a Sunday. We meet every week at 10 o'clock in the morning. You can always find out more about us on our website, mounthope.org, m-o-u-n-t-h-o-p-e.org, or like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram and or Twitter, just search Mount Hope Belmont.